40, with, cease, rude Boreas, and, rule Britannia, are amongst his favorite pieces, but the, Bay of Biscay, is his crack performance, with this he always commenced, when he wanted to enlist the sympathies of his auditors, mingling with the song sundry interlocutory notes and comments, having chosen a quiet street, where the appearance of mothers with blessed babies in the windows prognosticates a plentiful descent of coppers, Jack commences by pitching his voice uncommonly strong, and tossing Paul and the Billy Ruffian from side to side, to give an idea of the way Neptune serves the Navy, strikes, as one may say, into deep water, by plunging into, the Bay of Biscay, in the following manner, loud roared the dreadful thunder the rain a deluge pours our sails were split asunder, by lightning's vivid powers, do, young gentlemen, toss a copper to poor little Paul, God, bless you, master, may you never want a shot in your locker, thank the gentleman, Polly, the night both drear and dark, our poor disarded bark, there she lay lay quiet, Paul, there she lay noble lady in the window, look with pity on poor Jack, and his little Polly till next day, in the Bay of Biscay, oh, pray, kind lady, help the poor shipwrecked sailor cast away on his voyage to the West Indies, in a dreadful storm, sixteen hands on us took to the longboat, my lady, and was thrown on a disarmed island, three thousand miles from any land, which island was unfortunately manned by cannibals, who roast and eat every blessed one of us, except the cook's black boy, and him they potted, my lady, and I'm blessed but they'd have potted me, too. If I hadn't sung out to them savages, in this air sort of way, my lady, come all you jolly sailors bold, whose hearts are cast in honor's mold, while British valor I unfold has a, for the Arethusa, she was a frigate stout and brave as ever stemmed the dashing wave, Lord love your honor, and throw the poor sailor who has fought and bled for his country, a trifle to keep him from foundering, look, your honor, how I lost my precious limb in the service. You see we was in the little Tolly Mocker's frigate, cruising off the banks on Newfound, when we fell in with a saucy Yankee, twice the size of our craft, but, bless your honor, that never makes no odds to British sailors, and so we sarved her out with hot dumpling till she got enough, and forced her to haul down her stripes to the flag of old England, but somehow, your honor, I caught a chance ball that threw me on my beam ends, and left me to sing, my name deceased Tom Tuff and I've seen a little service, where the mighty billows roll and loud tempests blow, I've sailed with noble Howe, and I've fought with gallant Jarvis, and in gallant Duncan's fleet I've sung yo heave a sixpence or a shilling rewards Jack's loyalty and eloquence, a violent tossing of Polly and the ship testify his gratitude, and pocketing the coin he has collected, he puts about, and shapes his course for some other port, singing lustily as he goes, rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves, farewell, poor Jack, those diving bells, those diving bells, some of our contemporaries have been dreadfully scandalized at the indelicate scenes which take place on the sands at Ramsgate, where, it seems, a sort of joint stock social bathing company has been formed by the duckers and divers of both sexes, situations for obtaining favorable views are anxiously sought after by elderly gentlemen by whom opera glasses and pocket telescopes are much patronized, greatly as we admire the investigation of nature in her unadorned simplicity. Ramsgate would be the last place we should select, if we were prospectus of a new grand national and universal steam insurance, railroad accident, and partial mutilation provident society. Capital. Five hundred millions. In one hundred million L5 shares half deposit. 
the directors to be duly balloted for from amongst the consulting surgeons of the various metropolitan hospitals, acting secretaries, the county coroners, by the constitution of this society, the whole of the profits will be divided among such of the assured as can come to claim them. The public are particularly requested to bear in mind the double advantage so great a desideratum to all railroad travelers of being at one and the same time connected with a fire, life, and partial mutilation assurance company. The following is offered as a brief synopsis of the general intention of the directors. Deep attention is requested to the various classes, class I relating to a railroad's newly opened, consequently rated Tradley doubly hazardous. The rate of insurance will be as follows, percent, engineer, first six months, total life, 90 legs, that per each, 74 arms, ditto ditto, 60 ribs, per pair, or dozen, as contracted for. 55 dislocations and contusions, per score, 50 NB, a reduction of 7.5%, made after the first 6 months, first class passengers will be allowed 10%, for the stuffing of all carriages, except the one immediately next the engine, which will be charged as above, stokers, same as engineers, but a very liberal allowance made to such as the trains have passed over more than once, and a considerable reduction if scalds are not included. Exceptions, all who have five small children, and are only just appointed, second-class passengers, in consequence of these travelers being generally more thickly stowed together, the upper half of them had a chance of escape while crushing those underneath, so that a fair reduction, still leaving a living profit to the directors, may be made in their favor, thus the terms proposed for effecting their policies will be ten and a half percent, under the first class, to meet the views of all parties. Insurances may be affected from station to station, or on particular limbs. The following are the rates. The insurers paying down the premium at starting, LSD first class. Leg, 111.6 second ditto ditto, 179 first class. Arm, 100 second ditto ditto, 0143 first class. Bridge of nose very common with cuts from glass 089 second ditto ditto common with contusions from wooden frames 064 first class. Teeth each, 009 whole set, 1102nd class, ditto, 00434 whole set, 0122 next, where the parties do not carry engraved cards with name and address, first class, 5502nd ditto, 334 in all cases where the above sums are received in advance, the company pledge themselves to allow a handsome discount for cuts, scratches, contusions, and C, and C. All sums insured for to be paid six months after the death or recovery of the individual. A contract may be entered into for wooden legs, glass eyes, strapping, bandages, splints, and sticking plaster. Several enterprising young men as guards, stokers, engineers, experimental trippists, and surgeons, wanted for immediate consumption, apply for qualifications and appointments, to the branch office, at the new Highgate Cemetery. Nothing new. The Tories are, truly, conservative elves, for everyone knows they take care of themselves. School of Design, the public will be delighted to learn, there can be no doubt, as to the elegant acquirements of the various attachés of the new Tory premier, the peculiar avidity with which they one and all appear determined to secure the salaries for their various suppository honorary services, must convince the most skeptical that they have carefully studied the art of drawing, the labors of the session 
None but ministers know what ministers go through for the pure love of their country, no person who has not reposed in the luxuriously cushioned chairs of the Treasury or Downing Street can conceive the amount of business Sir Robert and his colleagues have transacted during the three months they have been in office. The people, we know, have been crying for bread. The manufacturers are starving but their rebellious appetites will be appeased. Their refractory stomachs will feel comforted when they are told all that their friends the Tories have been doing for them. How will they blush for their ingratitude when they find that the following great measures have been triumphantly carried through Parliament by Sir Robert's exertions the ventilating of the House Bill? Think of that, ye thin-gutted weavers of Manchester, drop down on your marrow bones, and bless the man who gives your representatives fresh air though he denies you a mouthful of coarse food. Then look at his next immense boon the Royal Kitchen Garden Bill. What matters it that the gaunt fiend famine sits at your board? when you can console yourselves with the reflection that cucumbers and asparagus will be abundant in the royal kitchen garden. But Sir Robert does not stop here. What follows next? The foreign bishops bill. See how our spiritual wants are cared for by your tender heart Tories. They shudder at the thoughts of Englishmen being fed on foreign corn, but they give them instead a full supply of foreign bishops. After that comes the report of the lunatics bill. This important document has been founded on the proceedings in the upper house, and is likely to be of vast service to the nation at large. Next follows the expiring laws bill. We imagine that a slight error has been made in the title of this bill, and that it should be read, expiring justice bill. As to expiring laws tease all a fallacy. One of the glorious privileges of the English Constitution Island that the laws never expire neither do the lawyers they are everlasting. Justice may die in this happy land. But law never. Again, there is a little grant of some thousands for Prince Albert's stables and dog kennels. Very proper too, these animals must be lodged. Aye, and fed, and the people the creatures whom God made after his own image the poor wretches who want nothing but a little bread, will lie down hungry and thankful, when they reflect that the royal dogs and horses are in the best possible condition. But we have not yet mentioned the great crowning work of ministers the Queen's speech on the prorogation of the Parliament last week. What an admirable illustration it was of that profound logical deduction that, out of nothing comes nothing, yet it was deduction that, out of nothing comes nothing, yet it was not altogether without design, and though some sneering critics have called the old song the burden of it was clearly so much for Buckingham. Mr. Silk Buckingham being unmercifully reproached by his unhappy publisher upon the dreadful weight of his recent work on America, fortunately espied the youngest son of the enraged and disappointed vendor of volumes actually flying a kite formed of a portion of the first volume. Heavy, retorted Silk. Nonsense, sir. Look there. So volatile and exciting is that masterly production, that it has even made that youthful scion of an obdurate line. Spite my teetotal feelings. Punch's new general letter writer. Perhaps no one operation of frequent recurrence and absolute necessity involves so much mental pain and imaginative uneasiness as the reduction of thoughts to paper. For the furtherance of epistolary correspondence. Some great keystone to this abstruse science some accurate data from which all sorts and conditions of people may at once receive instruction and assistance. Has been long wanting. Letter writers. In general. May be divided into two great classes. Viz. Those who write to ask favors, and those who write to refuse them. There is a vague notion extant, that in former days a third genus existed though by no means proportionate to the other two they were those who wrote to grant favors, these were also remarkable for enclosing remittances and paying the double postage at least. So we are assured, of our knowledge, 
we can advance nothing concerning them and their to us supposititious existence, save our conviction that the race has been long extinct. Those who write to ask, may be divided into a one, creditors, two, constituents, three, sons, four, daughters, five, their offspring, six, nephews, nieces, seven, indistinct cousins, and eight, unknown, dear, and intimate friends, those who write to refuse, are one, debtors, two, members of parliament, three, fathers, four, mothers, five, their kin, six, uncles, seven, aunts, eight, bilious and distant neighbors, and equally dear friends, who will do anything but what the askers want. We are confident of ensuring the everlasting gratitude of the above parties by laying before them the proper formerly for their respective purposes, and, therefore, as all the world is composed of two great classes, which, though they run into various ramifications, still retain their original distinguishing characteristics namely, that of being either debtors or creditors, we will give the general information necessary for the construction of their future effusions. Firstly, from a wine merchant, being a creditor, to a right honorable, being a debtor, Virtus Lane, City, January 17, 1841. My Lord, I have done myself the honor of forwarding your Lordship a splendid sample of exquisite Frenignac, trusting it will be approved of by your Lordship. I remain. Enclosing your lordship's small account, the payment of which will be most acceptable to your lordship's most obedient very humble servant, Gilbert Gripes. The answer to the same. The sample is tolerable. Send in thirty dozen add them to your account and let my steward have them punctually on December 17th, 1849. B.O.S.K.E. P.S. I expect you allow discount. Secondly, from a creditor, being a victim, Schneider, sufferer, or tailor to a one who sets off his wares by wearing the same, being consequently a debtor, honored sir, I can scarcely express my delight at your kind compliments as to the fit and patterns of the last 73 summer waistcoats, the rest of the order is in hand, I enclose a small account of 490 L, odd, which will just meet a heavy demand, will you, sir, forward the same by return of post, to your obliged and devoted humble servant, Adolphus J. Uelio Backstitch, P. Pink, Esquire N.C., N.C., Answer to the same Albany, U.B.D.D. Backstitch, P.N.D.W.I.S.E.L.E. Pink, Thirdly, from a constituent in the country, being a creditor, upon promises, to a returned member of Parliament in town, Bumbleton Butts, April 1st, 1841, Dear Sir, the enthusiastic delight myself and humble individual and the immense body of your enraptured constituents felt upon reading your truly patriotic, statesmanlike, learned, straightforward and consistent speech, may be conceived by a person of your immense parliamentary imagination, but cannot be expressed by my circumscribed vocabulary, in stating that my trifling exertions for the return of such a patriot are more than doubly recompensed by your noble conduct, may I be allowed to suggest the earnest wish of my eldest son to be in town, for the pleasure of being near such a representative which alone induces him to accept the situation of landing waiter you so kindly insisted upon his preparing for. You will, I am sure, be happy to learn. The last baby, as you desired is christened after, the country's, the people's, nay, the world's member. Believe me, with united regards from Mrs. F. and Joseph, ever your staunch supporter and admirer, Funk Flat, to Greit Gammon, Esquire and P. Fourthly, answer to the same, from Greit Gammon. M.P. Street Stevens, 
Dear and kind constituent, I am more than happy. My return for your borough has satisfied you, my country, and myself. What can I say more? Pray give both my names to the dear innocent. Be careful in the spelling. Two M's in gammon. One following the A the other preceding the O and immediately next to the final N. I think I have now answered every point of your really Junisian letter. Let me hear from you soon you cannot too soon and believe me. My dear Fink. Yours ever. Great gammon. Fink flat. Esquire N.C. N.C. Fifthly. From the same to the same. Second letter. Bumbleton Butts. April 4th. 1841. My dear friend and patron. All's right. The two M's are in their places. When will Joe be in his? I know your heart, pray excuse my earnestness, but oblige me with an early answer. Joe is dying to be near so kind, so dear, so sincere a friend, more devotedly than ever yours. Fine flat G. Gammon, Esquire and PNC, NC. Sixthly, answer from the NP, to the above. St. Stephen's, how can I express my feelings? My name, mine engrafted on the innocent offspring of the thoroughbred Fink's. Evermore to be by them and their heirs handed down to posterity. How I rejoice at that circumstance, and the intelligence I have so happily received about the wretched situation you speak of. Fancy, Fink, fancy the man, your son, in a moment of rashness, I meant to succeed, died of a sore throat, an infallible disorder attendant upon the duties of those deity landing waiterships. What an escape we have had. The place is given to my butler, so there's no fear. Kiss the child. And believe me ever, your sincere and much relieved friend, Great Gammon, to Fink Flat, Esquire N.C., N.C., from this time forward the correspondence, like Irish reciprocity, is all on one side, it generally consists of four and twenty letters from the constituent in the country to the returned member in town, as these are never opened, all that is required is a well-written direction, on a blank sheet of paper, seventhly, from sons to fathers, several, Dear father, studies continued blood profession future hopes application increased expenses irate landlady small remittance duty love say 25 pounds best wishes sister, mother, all at home, dutiful son, John J. Oreskayan, eighthly, answer to the same, delighted assiduity future fortune great profession, increase of family no cash best prayers, sister, mother, loving father, J. Oreskayan, Senator N.B., by altering the relative positions and sexes, the above is good for all relations. If writing to Nabod, more flattery in letter of asker, strong dose of oaths in refusers answer. Ninthly, from dear and intimate to a ditto ditto, Brighton, my dear Tom, how are you, old fellow? Here I am, as happy as a prince, that is, I should be if you were with me. You know when we first met, what a time it was. Do you remember, how the old times come back? and really almost the same circumstances. Pray do you recollect I wanted 150 then? Isn't it droll I do now? Send me your check, or bring it yourself. Ever yours, F.I.D.Z.B.R.O.W.N. Smith, T. Timms, Esquire Tenthly, answer from the ditto ditto to the ditto ditto. Old fellow, glad to hear you are so fresh. Give you joy wish I was with you, but can't come. Damn the last derby regularly stump cleaned out and done brown. Not a feather to fly with. Need I say how sorry I am. Here's your health in Burgundy. Must make a raise for my opera box and a new Tilbury. Just lost my last fifty at French Hazard. Ever. Your most devoted friend. T. Timms. F. Smith. Esquire.
The Barbara Vestiosikasbawler, a tale of the supernatural, at the little town of Stocksballer, on the Lower Rhine, in the year of grace 1830, resided one Hans Scraptions, an industrious and close-shaving barber. His industry met with due encouragement from the bearded portion of the community, and the softer sex, whose greatest fault is fickleness, generally selected Hans for the honor of new-fronting them. When they had grown tired of the ringlets nature had bestowed and which time had frosted, Hans continued to shave and thrive, and all the careful old burghers foretold of his future well-doing, when he met with a misfortune, which promised for a time to shut up his shop and leave him a beggar. He fell in love. Neighbors warned Hans of the consequences of his folly, but all remonstrance was vain. Customers became scarce. Wearing out their patience and their wigs together, the shop became dirty and Winter saw the flies of summer scattered on his showboard. Agnes Flirtitz was the prettiest girl in Stocksballer. Her eyes were as blue as a summer sky, her cheeks as rosy as an autumn sunset, and her teeth as white as winter snow. Her hair was a beautiful flaxen not a drab but that peculiar seventhony moist sugar tint which the poets of old were wont to call golden. Her voice was melodious, her notes and elk were equal to grizzies, in short. She would have been a very desirable, lovable young lady. If she had not been a coquette, Hans met her at a festival given in commemoration of the demise of the burgomaster's second wife I beg pardon, I mean in celebration of his union with his third bride. From that day Hans was a lost barber, sleeping, waking, shaving, curling, weaving, or powdering. He thought of nothing but Agnes. His love dreams placed him in all kinds of awkward predicaments. And Agnes what thought she of the unhappy barber? Nothing, except that he was a presumptuous puppy and wore very unfashionable garments. Hans received an intimation of this latter opinion, and, after sundry quailings and misgivings, he resolved to dispose of his remaining stock in trade, and, for once, dress like a gentleman. The measure had been taken by the tailor, the garments had been basted and tried on, and Hans was standing at his door in a state of feverish excitement, awaiting their arrival in a completed condition as there was to be fate on the morrow, that which Agnes was to be present when a stranger requested to be shaved. Hans wished him at the next barber's, but there was something so unpleasantly positive in the visitor's appearance, that he had not the power to object, so politely bowed him into the shop. The stranger removed his cap, and discovered two very ugly protuberances, one on each side of his head, and of most infernological appearance. Hans commenced operations the lather dried as fast as he laid it on, and the razor emitted small sparks as it encountered the bristles on the stranger's chin. Hans felt particularly uncomfortable, and not a word had hither to pass aid on either side, when the stranger broke the ice by asking, rather abruptly, have you any schnapps in the house? Hans jumped like a parched pea, without waiting for a reply. The stranger rose and opened the cupboard. I never take anything stronger than water, said Hans, in reply, to the shaw which broke from the stranger's lips as he smelled at the contents of a little brown pitcher. More fool you, replied his customer. Here taste that some of the richest great blood of Rheingau, and he handed Hans a small flask, which the sober barber respectfully declined. Ha, ha, and yet you hope to thrive with the women, said the stranger. No wonder that Agnes treats you as she does. But drink, man, drink. The stranger took a pipe and coolly seated himself again in his chair, hung one leg over the back of another, and striking his finger briskly down his nose, elicited a flame that ignited his tobacco, and then he puffed, and puffed, till every moth in the shop coughed aloud, 
the uneasiness of Hans increased, and he looked towards the door with the most cowardly intention, and, lo, two laughing, gimpled faces, were peeping in at them, ha, how are you, said the stranger, come in, come in, and to Hans' horror, two very equivocal damsels entered the shop, Hans felt scandalized, and was about to make a most powerful remonstrance, when he encountered the eye of his impertinent customer, and, from its sinister expression, he thought it wise to be silent, one of the damsels seated herself upon the stranger's knee, whilst the other looked most coaxingly to the barber, who, however, remained proof to all her winks and blinks, and, wreathed smiles, splits and, exclaimed the lady, the man's an icicle, Hans, you're a fool, said the stranger, and his enamorata concurred in the opinion, the flask was again proffered the eye artillery again brought into action, but Hans remained constant to pump water and Agnes flirtes. The stranger rubbed the palm of his hand on one of his head ornaments, as though he were somewhat perplexed at the condemnatious conduct of the barber, then rising, he gracefully led the ladies out. As he stood with one foot on the step of the door, he turned his head scornfully over his shoulder, and said, Hans, you are nothing but a barber, but before I eat, you shall repent of your present determination. What security have I that you will keep your word? replied Hans, who felt emboldened by the outside situation of his customer, and the shop poker, of which he had obtained possession, the best in the world, said the stranger, here, take these, and placing both rows of his teeth in the hands of the astonished Hans, he quietly walked up the street with the ladies, the astonishment of Hans had somewhat subsided, when Stitz, the tailor, entered with the so much and the so long expected garments, the stranger was forgotten, the door was bolted, the clothes tried on, and they fitted to a miracle, a small three-cornered piece of looking glass was held in every direction by the delighted tailor, who declared this performance his chef d'oeuvre and Hans felt, for the first time in his life, that he looked like a gentleman, without a moment's hesitation, or the slightest hint at discount for ready money, he gave the tailor his last feller, and his old suit of clothes, as per contract, shook Stitz's hand at parting, till every bone of the tailor's fingers ached for an hour afterwards, bolted the door, and went to bed the poorest, but happiest barber in Stocksballer. After a restless night, Hans rose the next morning with the honest sensation in the world. He fancied that the bed was shorter, the chairs lower, and the room smaller, than on the preceding day, but attributing this feeling to the feverish sleep he had had, he proceeded to put on his pantaloons. With great care he thrust his left leg into its proper division when, to his horror and amazement, he found that he had grown two feet at least during the night, and that the pantaloons which had fitted so admirably before, were now only knee breeches, he rushed to the window with the intention of breaking his neck by a leap into the street, when his eye fell upon the strange customer of the preceding day, who was leaning against the gable end of the house opposite, quietly smoking his meerschaum, Hans paused, then thought, and then concluded that having found an appetite, he had repented of his boast at parting, and had called for his teeth. Being a good-natured lad, Hans shuffled downstairs, and opening the door, called him to come over. The stranger obeyed the summons, but honorably refused to accept of his teeth, except on the conditions of the wager. To Hans' great surprise he seemed perfectly acquainted with the phenomenon of the past night, and good-naturedly offered to go to Stitz, and inform him of the barber's dilemma. The stranger departed and in a few moments the tailor arrived, and having ascertained by his inch measure the truth of Hans' conjectures, bade him be of good cheer, 
as he had a suit of clothes which would exactly fit him. They had been made for a traveling giant, who had either forgotten to call for them, or suspected that Stitz would require the gelt before he gave up the broadcloth. The tailor was right they did fit and in an hour afterwards Hans was on his way to the fate. When he arrived there many of his old friends stood agape for a few moments, but as stranger things had occurred in Germany than a man growing two feet in one night, they soon ceased to notice the alteration in Hans' appearance. Agnes was evidently struck with the improvement of the barber's figure, and for two whole hours did he enjoy the extreme felicity of making half a dozen other young gentlemen miserable, by monopolizing the arm and conversation of the beauty of Stocksballer. But pleasure, like fine weather, lasts not forever, and, as Hans and Agnes turned the corner of a path, his eye again encountered the stranger, whether it was from fear or dislike he knew not, but his heart seemed to sink, and so did his body, for to his utter dismay, he found that he had shrunk to his original proportions, and that the garment of the giant hung about him in anything but graceful festoons, he felt that he was a human telescope, that some infernal power could elongate or shut up at pleasure, the whole band of jealous rivals set up the laughing chorus, and Agnes, in the extremity of her disgust, turned up her nose till she nearly fractured its bridge, whilst Hans rushed from the scene of his disgrace, and never stopped running until he opened the door of his little shop, threw himself into a chair, and laid his head down upon an old family Bible which chanced to be upon the table. In this position he continued for some time, when, on raising his head, he found his tormentor and the two ladies, grouped like the graces, in the center of the apartment. Well, scratchings, said the gentleman. I have called for my teeth. You see I have kept my promise. Hans sighed deeply, and the ladies giggled. Nay, man, never look so glum. Here, take the flask forget Agnes, and console yourself with the love of the conclusion of this harangue must forever remain a mystery, for Hans, at this moment, took up the family volume which had served him for a pillow, and dashed it at the heads of the trio. A scream, so loud that it broke the tympanum of his left ear seemed to issue from them simultaneously a thick vapor filled the room, which gradually cleared off, and left no traces of Hans' visitors but three small sticks of stone brimstone. The truth flashed upon the barber his visitor was the far-famed Mephistopheles. Hans packed up his remaining wardrobe, razor, strop, soap dish, scissors and combs, and turned his back upon Stocksballer forever. Four years passed away, and Hans was again a thriving man and Agnes Fleur it's the wife of the doctor of Stocksballer. Another year passed on, and Hans was both a husband and a father, but the coquette who had nearly been his ruin had eloped with the chasseur of a traveling nobleman. Laurie on Geography. Sir P. Laurie has sent to say.